The novelist Stephen King once declared Howard Phillips Lovecraft to have been the greatest horror writer of the 20th century. H.P. Lovecraft, who died in 1937, was a reclusive, neurotic writer who dreaded criticism, hesitated to publish, and died young. But he has had an outsized impact and enjoyed a real renaissance of interest. You've probably heard of the old ones, a reference to the mysterious elder gods who reappear in Lovecraft's stories. Or you've heard of Cthulhu, an undead monster from Lovecraft's novella Mountains of Madness. Or perhaps you recognize the word Necronomicon, the so-called Book of Dead Names that Lovecraft's protagonists are constantly referencing. But whether you're a Lovecraft fan or you barely recognize the word Necronomicon, you've probably never heard that a small community of devotees pray to a pantheon of otherworldly beings based on Lovecraft's writings. That's right. Some people take Lovecraft literally. What is the Typhonian order? And why would anyone consider a collection of stories published in pulp magazines in the 1920s and 30s to be literally true? All this and more in today's Spectral Skull Session. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session, tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas but we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is and we realize that whatever is out there the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory what we bring to the table is small s skepticism a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story okay let's get started Welcome back. Today's episode will outline Lovecraft's works, the religious movements and paranormal traditions that take his work seriously, and attempt to give some explanation for why he has had such an impact on what people believe. To most who know him at all, H.P. Lovecraft is a name associated with weird fiction. He lived from 1890 to 1937, and his 65 short stories and two novellas appeared almost exclusively in publications like Argosy and Weird Tales. These are pulp fiction magazines, with a readership that skewed towards young men. Many of his stories were not published until after his death, because he was too sensitive and self-critical to seek publication. He lived most of his life in Providence, Rhode Island, where many of his stories are set. And his gravestone in Providence says, H.P. Lovecraft, I am Providence. Recently, I became aware that there are people who believe that characters and elements from the works of Lovecraft are literally true. Some of these people are into the occult, and they practice such things as chaos magic and Krollian magic. Others are French science fiction aficionados who've become convinced of the reality of prehistoric intelligent beings. We'll get to all of that, but it's probably good to start with what Lovecraft wrote well, stylistically, the fiction of Lovecraft is somewhere between horror and science fiction. It can be considered neo-Gothic because there's clearly 
great deal of influence from such American writers as uh, Edgar Allan Poe, with a great deal of attention to mood and atmosphere. And the works of Lovecraft focus on just a handful of ideas. One of them is uh, the growth of human knowledge will lead to catastrophic discoveries. For example, in The Mountains of Madness, an expedition to Antarctica discovers the ruins of a lost city and frozen aliens, which, once revived, proceed to kill off the explorers. Now, you may recognize this as sounding eerily reminiscent of a very popular John Carpenter film called The Thing. And actually, uh, John Carpenter, the, the director and movie maker, he cr created an entire series. It's called the Apocalypse Trilogy. The Thing is the first and best well-known of his movies. And then the next one is The Prince of Darkness, followed by In the Mouth of Madness. So notice the connection between those titles at the Mountains of Madness and In the Mouth of Madness. Indeed, that 1995 Carpenter horror film, uh, very clearly Lovecraftian in its content. It deals with monsters, a book that drives people insane, and the end of the world. For Lovecraft, knowledge was dangerous, as in Call of Cthulhu, where a man investigating the mysterious death of his uncle puts his life at risk just by uncovering the existence of the ancient secret society behind his murder. Or Reanimator, in which a scientist discovers a way to bring back the dead, but the dead once revived are invariably violent psychopaths. And I can't even begin to tell you how many of Lovecraft's stories have uh, the plot device. Somebody sees something so horrible, the mere scene of it makes them go insane. Another theme of Lovecraft's works are unreliable narrators. Narrators are often imprisoned, usually in asylums. They often freely divulge that elements of their stories are in contradiction with the known facts. Just like Edgar Allan Poe does in The Telltale Heart, there's a, a distancing between the story and the narrator and the reader. Is this narrator describing things that actually happened? We're given some reasons for questioning whether the story actually developed the way it's described. Another very common theme in Lovecraft's works Dysgenic horror. Many of his stories deal with biological contamination or degradation. The Lurking Fear deals with the population of New England Dutch settlers who've been isolated so long they've degenerated into murderous chimps. One of the most popular of his stories, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, deals with a village of people who've interbred with some kind of merfolk and thereby become somewhat fishy. Other lesser-known stories deal with people discovering some monstrous element in their family history that links them to a supernatural or preternatural horror, much like the popular 2000s-era horror film Hereditary. Critics of Lovecraft cite Lovecraft's fear of contamination as evidence his works are allegorically racist. I would counter that within his fiction, Lovecraft's racism is only a subset of a broader concern with eugenics. If you were a follow-the-science type American back in the 1920s, you shared the elite's concerns with the quality of the American genetic stock, as reflected in such policies as the Virginia Miscegenation Act of 1924, which prevented the intermarriage of people of different races. With support from the prestigious Carnegie Institution, the U.S. adopted a wide range of eugenic policies that include mass forced sterilization and racialized immigration quotas. Lovecraft was very much a nerd of his time, not actively doing scientific experiments, but definitely following the science. He wrote more than 30 amateur science articles on topics ranging from metallurgy to astronomy. So he wasn't practicing science as a scientist, 
but he was reading it and writing about it. And part of the elite scientific consensus of that era in U.S. history was the importance of eugenics. So there's surely some sort of cautionary tale to be had here. Um, you can't just blindly agree with the public professionals of your era. You really need to think for yourself. And scientific literacy is no substitute for ethics and human decency, something that I think Lovecraft is aware of in his fiction, because another one of his themes is scientific occultism. Lovecraft is very aware that science can be deployed to evil ends. The summoning of the dead, black magic, contact with non-human intelligences, these are real, real phenomena, but they're at least partially mastered through post-enlightenment techniques such as rational inquiry, the mastery of a body of knowledge, or acquisition of technical skills. There is a kind of scientizing of the occult. For example, in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, we learn about the existence of an international society of necromancers who've been sharing their research into summoning beings from the quote-unquote outer spheres. The protagonist of this story is able to intercept some of their correspondence, and they begin talking with each other about their occult experiments, sharing information about methods and results, all in an occultic jargon that is only partially intelligible to him and the reader, and with many references to source texts, occult tomes, all steering their research programs. There's just one cool moment in the case of Charles Dexter Ward where they intercept a letter written by someone they think is a wizard, and they open up the letter, and it's written in the language and style of somebody who speaks English in the 1700s, because this wizard has been around for like 200 years because he's he's basically immortal. He's figured out how to keep himself alive. And he's talking to this other wizard in the letter and he's saying, you know, you didn't do the spell right because you didn't pronounce the words in this and this way. That's how you do it. Like I learned this and it took me a long time to figure it out because I was like reading a translation of a book and it was a translation into another language that wasn't the original language and I didn't understand how to transliterate the words. Um, that's a really cool moment. Because Lovecraft just prints the letter in the story, and you're reading the letter, and it's written in Old English, but it's about this scientific necromancy, which is super weird. You know, they don't use scientific terms, but they're clearly, right, they're deliberating about an experiment, and why can't I produce the results that you got? Well, you're not using the right method, and here's how you do it. Here's what you need to do to get it right. And the reason why that's anachronistic, you know, Jason Josephus Storm, in his book, The Myth of Disenchantment, says that alchemists and wizards in European history did not practice the sharing of their results with each other. That's part of why alchemy didn't turn into a science. If you were an alchemist and you had the way to turn lead into gold, or you, well, you probably didn't, but if you were saying you had the way to turn lead into gold, you didn't want other people to know what your methods were, then they would figure out that you, you didn't really know how to turn lead into gold. So you keep it a secret that was part of your mystique and how you, you know, you sold your skills to other people. And um, it's really a hallmark of the scientific revolution to share your results and methods with other researchers. And so to see that in Lovecraft's writings is very creative, right? He's very, very creative. And throughout his short stories, these occult practices are described in a kind of scientific-like way. It's a thing you do, you know, you try to get a certain result. If you don't get the result, you try to figure out what do you do wrong, you do it again, and, you know, and there are these creepy people living in the woods of New England 
They've been doing these things for years and they're not getting the results they want, but they're definitely causing trouble for us normal people. You know, trouble in the form of curses and creatures that come out of the ground and, you know, possibly one day when they do get it right, it will be the end of the world. And by the way, the idea that there are rituals and structures and things you might do to help bring about the end of the world can be found in the 1980s blockbuster film Ghostbusters. There's another piece of pop culture that owes its origin in part to H.P. Lovecraft. Probably one of the most important themes we need to note from the works of H.P. Lovecraft is his realism. He makes a concerted and multi-pronged effort to overcome the limitations of horror and science fiction, the ridiculousness of strange things described plainly. So one of the ways that Lovecraft does this is through his gradualism. Dangers and monsters are always hinted at long in advance of their actual appearance in the story, if they appear at all. Another is uh, the use of first-person narration and other narrative devices. So we always read a story that purports to be a letter or a diary of someone. This allows Lovecraft to have his narrator say things like, I know this is going to sound crazy, and of course also allows us to have some you know, distancing between the narrator and the real story and raises questions about, well, did this really happen? Maybe it's all at least partially in his head. Uh, and indeterminance is another sort of literary tactic Lovecraft uses. You know horror movies. They lose half their thrill when the monster finally appears. There will be all this suspense and fear when your main characters are being stalked by a nameless dread. Then suddenly you see a guy in a plastic lizard suit and you're laughing. Well, Lovecraft was aware of this phenomena. He was aware that it was a problem in literature as well. And so he used various linguistic tactics to try to maneuver around it. One tactic, he often describes things using archaic and frankly vague language. For example, he repeatedly uses the word eldritch. Various monsters and horrors in his stories are described as eldritch. This is a word, it just means weird. It's also kind of a weird word. So it's almost an example of onomatopoeia. That is where the, uh, that's where a word is formed from a sound associated with what it's named after like bam or blam, pow. But it's also a case, um, it's not really onomatopoeia because it's a case where the word has the same property it describes. Eldritch is a word that means weird. It's also a weird word. Another Lovecraft tactic is to describe monsters and elder beings, aliens and gods, as not having a definitive appearance because they're multidimensional, phasing in and out of our reality. So the narrators will say things like it looked like a blob or you could see through it. It was translucent. It was fuzzy and blurred. So gradualism, first person narration, indeterminate antagonists. These are all things Lovecraft does to try and enhance the realism of his works. It's clear to me he's experimenting. He was an experimenter working with different literary techniques, different storytelling strategies. And obviously it doesn't always work, which is one of the reasons why Lovecraft you either love him or you hate him. It also leads me to one of Lovecraft's pro-realist innovations that are probably needs to be noted because it's the most important innovation I think he makes. And that's his interweaving of real-world trivia with things that are totally made up. If you're familiar with the hit American 90s detective serial, The X-Files, you know there's a recurring trope in that show involving slideshows. FBI agent Mulder, the true believer, brings Agent Scully the skeptic down into his basement office and makes her listen to a briefing where he explains how their latest caper 
appears to be connected to some previous documented mystery. Crop circles, chupacabra, Bigfoot, alien abductions. In those scenes, the X-Files would have Agent Mulder draw from actual stories, actual events, at least alleged actual events, which the audience might have known about independently, right? The famous footage of the Bigfoot that often looks like it's just a guy in a a guy in a in an ape suit, or Area 51, right? Or they talk about a parasite that had actually been appearing in the news lately. And so that would add a certain element of realism. Now, Lovecraft may not have invented this strategy of interweaving fact and fiction, but he certainly perfected it. Not only does he work real cutting-edge science, like the discovery of Pluto into his story, The Whisper in Darkness, and there's also the importance of non-Euclidean geometry, which works its way into Dreams in the Witch House. But Lovecraft took it a step further by introducing a cast of recurring mythological entities, which, despite being totally invented, are cited repeatedly across his stories and in a context suggestive of giving deep background. Cthulhu, Nartholep, Yog-Sothoth, these entities are often referenced ambiguously. Are they gods? Are they demons? Are they space aliens? You never quite know, but they reappear continually throughout stories, occasionally as central players, more often merely as something that's referenced in passing. And Lovecraft went so far as to invent a fake source text, the dreaded Necronomicon. Characters in Lovecraft's works are often citing the Necronomicon. They'll say, my God, this is just like that thing in that dreaded book by the mad Arab, the Necronomicon. And sometimes Lovecraft will introduce a story with an epithet, quoting an ancient book. Other times, he'll just make up a quote and attribute it to the Necronomicon. And so here's a quote from a Necronomicon. I'll just read you one and give you a taste for what that's like. Whosoever speaketh of Cthulhu shall remember that he but seemeth dead. He sleeps, and yet he does not sleep. He has died, yet he is not dead. Asleep and dead though he is, he shall rise again. Again, it should be shown that that is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange aeons even death may die. Okay, so Cthulhu, he's asleep, he's not asleep, he's dead, he's not dead. Is he in a coma? No, he's, he's underneath the ocean, and when the stars are right, he will return, and he will conquer the world. So the Necronomicon was his oft-quoted and referenced mysterious forbidden tome that reappears in Lovecraft stories, but did it really exist? It definitely seemed that way to many readers. And in the 80 years since his death, innumerable fans of Lovecraft have sought out the Necronomicon. So many that the Harvard Library website mentions Necronomicon in their FAQ. They say, quote, The original Necronomicon is fictional. That is, it exists only in the fictional world created by the author H.P. Lovecraft. Within that fictional world, Lovecraft did state that one of the copies of the work was kept in Widener Library at Harvard. But since there is no real Necronomicon, as Lovecraft described it, the library can have no real copy of it. A likely story, Harvard. So, uh, Lovecraft himself wrote about the Necronomicon in letters to friends, saying, quote, It is rather good fun to have this artificial mythology given an air of verisimilitude by wide citation. And why use a fake book to add an air of verisimilitude? when the scholarly and hyper-literate Lovecraft could probably have cobbled together obscure allusions from real texts, 
Well, Lovecraft told a friend, quote, seriously written books on dark, occult, and supernatural don't amount to much, end quote. So the search for Lovecraft's Necronomicon is a sort of recurring disappointment for Lovecraft's fans. Everyone wants to read the book written by that mad Arab, Al-Azared, who was eaten alive by invisible beings in the marketplace later in life. Many people would happily settle for the Latin translation, written in the Low Vulgate by Vermius. These are all references to fake citations, uh, fake allusions made by characters within the Lovecraft universe. But you can't get a copy of the Necronomicon because it's made up. It doesn't exist. Now, on this topic, um, many people began to notice that a Lester Crowley, that British warlock oft mentioned on this show, that he, in some of his rituals and incantations he was publishing, was referring to the Great Old Ones, which sounds very familiar to a reader of Lovecraft who would know them as the Old Ones. And so um, people have thought that there was some connection there. Now, Crowley and Lovecraft were contemporaries, with Lovecraft dying in 1937 at the age 47, Crowley dying in 1947 at the age 72. And so it wouldn't be crazy if Crowley read some Lovecraft and being a bit of a trickster himself, you can see my last episode on this, uh, he may have worked a little bit of Crowley, oh, sorry, he may have worked a little bit of Lovecraft into his, his occult synthesis. But um, it really wasn't until Crowley died that his successor, Kenneth Grant, assumed leadership of the Ordo Templi Orientis, the OTO, and he began writing that Lovecraft's stories contained elements that are literally true. In numerous places, Grant would write that Lovecraft's Necronomicon is a real book of nonfiction originating from another plane of existence that can be accessed through our dreams. The basis for this claim seems to have been that Grant found many parallels between Crowley's rituals, the works of Lovecraft, and another famous occultist, the Russian-American theosophist Madame Blavatsky. So we can explain those parallels fairly easily. Um, Blavatsky was a bit prior to Lovecraft. Lovecla Lovecraft was a wide reader, probably had some familiarity with her work, and given his own affection for realism and the injecting of trivially true things into his fiction, he probably did work in some stuff that was referenced to Blavatsky and Theosophy. His characters sometimes talk about Theosophy and say, oh my god, if only the Theosophists knew how much more horrible the real truths are, right? The Theosophists are only uh, guessing, right? And they, they don't even come close to realizing the true story behind human history. So um, he must have had some awareness of Theosophy, which if you don't know what Theosophy is, it was this 19th century European movement. It's like they were doing science of mythology, where they were looking at different old religions and old myths, and they were saying there's got to be some truth behind them. And they were trying to sort of back, back infer, interpolate what the truth was. And uh, they also supplemented their research methods with um, methods that are straight up occult, like spirit writing, and some of their leaders claim to be in communication with secret societies. So it's sort of like almost a scientific movement, but it has very strong cult elements, and in the 19th century, mostly. Moving on, in part because of his obsession with the works of H.P. Lovecraft, 
Kenneth Grant was forced to break away from the Ordo Templi Orientis, and he formed his own order, the Typhonian Ordo Templi Orientis. Toto for short, I kid you not, that was their abbreviation Toto, like the 1980s pop rock band. Cue the song Africa. I found this information um, about Kenneth Grant in John Engel's article, The Cults of Lovecraft, published 2014 in the journal Mythlore. So these are some people who took Lovecraft literally. They went in a particular direction, saying there was a real occult basis for his Necronomicon. Well, let's go in another direction. Now, there are other people who took Lovecraft's scientific occultism in the more scientific direction. Jason Covalito is a cultural writer who works on aliens and UFOlogy. He traces the belief in ancient aliens back to Lovecraft. He did some digging and found there was an obscure French journal that was reprinting Lovecraft's stories in the 60s. The editors of this journal, called Planet, became enamored themselves with Lovecraft's ideas of ancient ruins, the surviving remnants of alien colonists, themselves interpreted it by early man as gods or demons. And so the editors at Planet came to the conclusion that the ideas spelled out in Lovecraft's stories may have had some basis in fact. This is perhaps the um, blasphemous hidden secret that the theosophists can only guess at, right? And that is that there were actual aliens here on Earth before mankind had established a civilization and they established some sort of proto-civilization. So these ideas are developed by the Planet editors in their book, Morning of the Magicians. That book made the case for the reality of some kind of spacefaring prehistoric race by suggesting that the pyramids of Egypt could not have been made without advanced technology, that certain archaeological sites were clearly designed to be viewed from the sky, and they described anachronistic artifacts, like what seems to be an ancient battery that's been found in Iraq, so you may have heard of these things before, at least like the pyramid stuff is probably familiar. A lot of this stuff that's been circulating on the History Channel for the past 20 or 30 years, you can trace it back to these French guys who were really into Lovecraft. And um, now it should also be noted, most people on the History Channel, they get it from Eric von Deineken. He's a Swiss guy who wrote the 1967 bestseller, Chariots of the Gods. But he's a Swiss guy. I'm sure he can read French. That's Cavalito's argument that he makes in his book, The Cult of Alien Gods, which is that, um, look, this stuff was in the milieu in the French counterculture in the 60s, and it was easy for Eric von Deineken, a Swiss guy who can probably read French, to pick it up. So, and in fact, you know, as an aside, I'll say the fascinating genealogy of ancient aliens, all the weird offshoots and permutations, like, um, for example, this guy, Zachariah Sitchin, who thinks that the uh, Sumerians were visited by aliens, and he's got copious amounts of material about the Sumerians and how we know that they were in contact with aliens. That's all an offshoot of this ancient alien stuff that goes back through Dynakin to these planet editors to Lovecraft. At least that's the argument Cavalito makes in his book, The Cult of Alien Gods. You can read that for yourself if you'd like to know more about it, but I'd like to turn to one last group of people who take Lovecraft seriously but these dudes have it all figured out, and that's the Church of Satan. So the Church of Satan uses elements from Lovecraft's short stories in their rituals, but I went to their website, and they have this to say, quote, Satanists understand that any prop that is sufficiently stimulating can be used in personal ritual. 
So if the materials contained in this book send the proper chill down your spine, then certainly avail yourself of them. Just don't fool yourself outside the ritual chamber into the belief that you are using some authentic ancient tome handed down by elder gods to their human or humanoid servitors. That is from Peter Gilmore, High Priest of the Church of Satan. So doing some more looking into this, I learned that the Church of Satan say they're atheists, so they don't really believe in Satan, who I understand to be this antagonistic of the Abrahamic God described in, uh, in the Bible. So the Church of Satan says they don't believe in any gods. They say, quote, since the Satanist understands that all gods are fiction, instead of bending a knee in worship to or seeking friendship or unity with such mythical entities, he places himself at the center of his own subjective universe as his own highest value. End quote. Well, that's nice to know that the Church of Satan is not really knee-deep into this stuff. They're not taking Lovecraft to be literally true. Although I will say, I don't understand why they call it the Church of Satan. It sounds like it's the Church of Yourself. Why not call it that? That would certainly clear up a lot of confusion, but at least they know that the Lovecraft entities are not real, and in that sense, they clearly have their heads on straight. So let's step back. We have some people who read Lovecraft and decided that his occultism was somehow rooted in reality and adapted magical or magical rituals to summon Cthulhu. Meanwhile, other people read the same material and walked away inspired to look at archaeology entirely differently. So this leads to the big question, what is it about Lovecraft that has this effect on people? It could be that Kenneth Grant and the Typhonian Order are right. Lovecraft was tapping into some psychic knowledge about the structure of reality in his dreams. That's absolutely possible. But besides the fact that Lovecraft denies that, says the Necronomicon is not real, let me say I have a deeper problem with people who want to use Lovecraft as source material for magical rituals to make contact with ancient and eldritch beings. People who do these things in Lovecraft's stories, they all go insane, or they turn into monsters, or they die, or at best they end up imprisoned in an asylum. Plus, most of the time when Lovecraft's entities interact with us humans at all, their motives are bad. They're more interested in eating us than helping us. If there was some element of reality to Lovecraft's entities, I would think you would want to avoid these creatures. Uh, so if you read Lovecraft and you decide it must be true or true-ish, and then you decide you want to join the cult of Cthulhu, you know, you're like those rats that are infected with Toxoplasmosis Gandhi and they run towards the cats instead of away from them. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. There's this uh, parasite that will actually make rats go run towards their predators instead of away from them, right? So there's something wrong with, with their neurological wiring. And if that's your attitude you have towards Cthulhu, whether he exists or not, I would say that there's something wrong with your neurological wiring. Maybe instead, maybe go outside instead of summoning Cthulhu, maybe go look for snakes because I'm fairly confident that snakes are real. And while you're looking for snakes, you can get the added benefit of some exercise and some fresh air. Maybe you'll come back to reality before you get bit. So we still want to know, why does Lovecraft have this weird effect on people that some people think it's true? Here's my suggestion. Lovecraft had more success with realism than we appreciate. And I think his stories present with such verisimilitude to use his word, such verisimilitude 
that some people are simply swept away into accepting them as real. To give some first-person antidote, I am struck to this day when I read a good Lovecraft story and something interrupts me, I'll feel like I just beamed back from another dimension. I'll be like, where have I been? It just happened to me earlier this summer. That's why I'm doing this episode. I was struck by how vivid the stories are in my mind when I read them. As the Lovecraft scholar S.T. Joshi writes, quote, So much of the power and effectiveness of Lovecraft's work depends on words. In many ways, his stories are not plain narratives, but a kind of incantation where he seeks to create a mesmerizing atmosphere of horror and awe through the spell of language. So you might say there definitely is some truth to the Typhonian Order's belief that there's some magical or magical element to Lovecraft. He was an experimental writer, and he was working on making horror and weird fiction very realistic. And maybe he just succeeded beyond his wildest dreams, and he casts a spell with his words that for some people just puts them into another dimension. It causes them to experience things, to become prone to believing in things that they otherwise would not have any liability to believe in. He was definitely an experimental writer. Um, in fact, that's probably why he's not better known, because many people are deeply put off by his style, his overuse of adjectives, his tendency to prefer British spellings over English, uh, his use of archaic words. And so, um, you know, he was he was somebody who was playing around with language. He got a lot of things wrong. He got something right. So I think you can learn about how to be a persuasive writer from reading Lovecraft. There's something of real value there. You know, maybe you want to pull off your own hoax or create your own mythos. And I think you could learn something from reading Lovecraft about how to get people to believe differently because he's had an incredible impact for the rest of us. You know, just enjoy Lovecraft. Enjoy the fiction. I would encourage you to really appreciate some of the themes I've noted in this episode, I don't see mentioned anywhere else. I don't see anyone else talking about the scientific occultism of Lovecraft, even though it's very clear to me that it's there and that his own scientific literacy influenced his fiction in an interesting way. Um, I really enjoy his upside down nightmare vision of the world in which there are limits to human knowledge. Discoveries can lead to madness. Ultimately, human beings are at the mercy of cosmic forces that are cold and impersonal and uncaring. Although, how uncaring can Cthulhu really be when he needs a cult to get himself into our world? Uh, even Yog Sothoth, sometimes described as a horribly iridescent orbs. He's just a bunch of orbs that float in the sky and are horrible. Um, even he, you can summon him with an incantation and uh, he'll do things for you. So... You know, um, yeah, it's an inhuman universe, but when you're writing Pulp Fiction, you still have to have faces and monsters that want to eat people, and there's got to be some reason why these things want to interact with humanity. Now, some people, now some people say, don't read Lovecraft because he's racist. And that man had a lot of outdated ideas for sure. I would even go so far as to agree the early Lovecraft is a white supremacist. Um, he definitely seems to have thought that English people were biologically and culturally superior to others. I'm not sure if he would extend that to Scandinavians or Gallic peoples, but he sure writes repeatedly about indigenous people around the world as, quote, degenerate. In fact, I find it 
like ridiculous how often he talks about degenerate Eskimos. There seems to be an assumption in Lovecraft's work that if you come from an island or any part of the world that's isolated from Europe, you must be inbred. Fear of genetic contamination, central theme of his works, as I've mentioned before, you can trace that back to his scientific racism, right? His eugenicism, which was popular at that time. But he was also straight up anti-Semitic, um, at least early in life. And so here's what I want to say about that. As this man grew up and had more experiences, his views moderated. So he was involved in some professional organizations on the East Coast. He made Jewish friends, he eventually married a Jewish woman. Later in life, he goes up to Quebec. He wasn't much of a traveler, but it does he does at some point go up to Quebec. And he wrote favorably after that trip about the First Nations, you know, the indigenous people of Canada. As he had more life experiences, his racist and eugenics moderated, although he remained an elitist snob. So I think there's actually an important lesson here. So people say don't read Lovecraft because he's racist. But if you look at Lovecraft's life, the arc of his life, it was through engaging with people and going to other places, he was able to form his own opinions and move away from the prejudices of his class and the little elite New England circle that he was raised in. The takeaway here being that open-mindedness is a virtue that when combined with experience allows people to grow out of bad ideas. If we adopt the mindset that we should shun and never engage with people or texts that are problematic, we're doing the opposite of what Lovecraft did to grow up. We're being closed-minded, which is an attitude that undermines personal growth. In my view, the only good reason not to read Lovecraft is that you don't like it. If you pick up one or two stories by Lovecraft and you don't enjoy them, that's a good reason not to read anymore. He's obviously not for everyone. They're dark themes, bleak themes, and writing that can be difficult to master. It's difficult sometimes to figure out what he's talking about. For everyone else, enjoy it and be forewarned. Lovecraft's writings do seem to have a history of causing some people to lose contact with reality. Until next time, I have been Dane. Stay strange and stay sane.